I was thinking I would say this. First, um, it's been good to see several snowboards made it back because it's now April and, and you're back. And thanks for coming back to um, Michigan. But you left places that were warmer than they are here. And uh, you came back for snow. So you thought you left snow and you came back for more. Um, but I have this question this morning. And here's the question. What are you pursuing? Right? What are you pursuing? In fact, I'd say it this way. Where do you find your purpose in life? Where do you find purpose? In fact, I think almost all of us ask these questions because here's the reality for all of us. Um, what you're pursuing is going to lead you to your life's purpose. What you're pursuing is going to lead you to your life's purpose. And so the question for all of us is we're all trying to answer this one question in some way, shape, or form, and it's this. What on earth am I here for? Like, what's my purpose in life? What am I doing? Why do I exist? What am I trying to accomplish? And so um, I was thinking about this, and, and I had written this before I, I stayed up last night, late for me on a Saturday night, and watched basketball. Um, by the way, that last game last night, if you stayed up for it, it was one of the best college games I've watched in years. I'm not a Duke or a North Carolina fan, but man, it was good. Um, and so I, I, I stayed up and watched that, and I found myself remembering I started watching the Final Four when I was about six or seven years old, maybe earlier, but, but about six or seven, I never missed it. Um, in fact, my parents, I remember one time they were going out to dinner or something on a Saturday night during the Final Four, and they're like, are you going to go? I was like, no. I, mean, I was like nine. Like, I'm staying home. I don't remember how that went, but I think they let me stay home. But because I was going to watch those games, because I literally, I had these dreams when I was a kid that I would play in the Final Four. By the way, it never happened. Um, in case you're curious, spoiler alert, right? In fact, I had this dream that I was going to play professional basketball. It was my dream from a young age. I was convinced that was what was going to happen to my life. I had always heard that you're going to be like two inches taller than your dad. My dad's six foot four. And so I'm like, all right, I can do this. If I'm like two or three inches taller than my dad, that might be a good result. In case you're curious, I stopped growing somewhere between five foot 10 and five foot 11. I like to say five eleven. I don't really know. And I'm not getting measured again. So somewhere in high school, I realized that dream is probably unrealistic. And so then I thought, well, I played baseball too, so maybe, um, but my fastball topped out in the low 80s, which in case you watch Major League Baseball, is not fast enough. So I realized that was a dream that was going to have to be pushed aside. Like I thought this was my life's purpose. I was going to be a professional athlete. Hasn't happened, by the way. Um, And I ended up playing tennis in college. I played through high school and um, and was, was ranked nationally and, and won some big matches. And, and yet I knew, I knew um, I wasn't good enough to play pro. So like I said, somewhere the, the goal shifted from being a professional athlete. Like maybe I can get some money for college. I was fortunate enough to get that. But I realized my dream, my purpose, my existence that I was hoping for wasn't going to come true. No matter how much I wanted it, I mean, I'm still waiting for a phone call from an NBA general manager, but, you know, 5'10", 5'11", lost a couple steps from when they were younger, almost 40-year-olds, don't get a lot of NBA phone calls, in case you're curious about that. That doesn't really happen. It's probably not going to come true. But here's the crazy thing. Like, if it hadn't been for the fact that somewhere in there, Jesus kind of gripped my heart, and I realized that I wanted to to have my life somewhat defined by him, um, if that hadn't happened, I don't know what would have happened. 
because my entire identity was wrapped up in being an athlete. Everything about who I was was defined by that. It was what I pursued with passion. I, I pursued it at such a great rate that at one point I had to like, I had to change how I practiced in college because my brain would only be thinking about that. And so I'd go to class and I couldn't remember what we talked about in class because I was only thinking about how I was going to practice later that day. Like it was an obsession. And so I had to shift the way I thought because I couldn't even study. And here's why I tell you that story, not to say like, um, because here's what happens when you graduate and you played the sport, even in college, you're now a former athlete. You're not a current anything. You were officially former at 22 years of age, right? My cousin played AAA baseball and um, was one of the finalists for the Johnny Bench College Catcher of the Year. So that's one of the top 12 catchers in all of college baseball. Pretty good, right? Um, Made it to AAA. Retired at 26 from baseball. And he joked, he's like, yep, I'm retired. I'm 26 years old. And he kind of laughed about it. It's just real estate now. Like, nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But, but here's the reality for anyone. Like, whatever you pursue, we, we sometimes pursue these things with this end goal that's unreasonable or unrealistic. In fact, I would say it this way. Like, we, we ask the question, what is your purpose? What are you pursuing? In fact, I would go so far as to say it this way. I, I, I would say it like this. Um, pers- often people say, say it this kind of way, like pursue your passion, right? I, I don't want to say pursue your passion. Because you can have bad passions. Have you noticed that? You can be passionate about things that are not good. So what I will say is this. Pursue the right passion. Then you might find purpose. Pursue the right passion. Then you will find Purpose. Why? Because we can be passionate, as I said, about all the wrong things. In fact, um, we can be so passionate about the wrong things that we don't even know that they're the wrong things. We can be so passionate about things that we didn't know were not things we should have been passionate about. And so here's the reality for us. We don't have to stay there. And so this series we've been in, we just call it Journey to the Cross. And we've been talking about how how often on this journey to follow Jesus, and we've been looking as he has made this journey to the cross, as we continue to follow him, we begin to find there are things that we have to lay down at the foot of the cross and go, no longer am I going to carry this because this thing I have been passionate for, this thing I have longed for, or this thing I have wondered, the purpose I thought I existed for, at the end of the day, it's worthless and meaningless, and there's no value in it, and so I've got to let it go. In fact, um, we're going to have an opportunity at the end of the service, like I'm just We've left a cross in the back of our sanctuary, and, and there are little index cards next to it where you can write, like, things that you sense God is telling you to lay down or let go of and leave behind. Maybe they've been things you pursued, right? I told you I pursued athletics with all that I was, and yet at the end of the day, the problem for me and many other people is you begin to find if that's where your identity lies, your life is going to feel pretty meaningless at some point. And so we've been looking really particularly at the letters that Paul has written during the season. We're going to continue to look today at Philippians chapter 3 in just a few moments. But, but Paul, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and Paul for us is a great example because Paul, Paul often shows us what we've done right, and he shows us what he's done wrong. And so the benefit of Paul is that he gives us these both things. And so what he's doing in the letter to the church in Philippi is he's trying to point out what does it look like for us to follow Jesus more deeply? 
What does it look like to be more formed by Christ than anything else? In fact, uh, one of the things that Paul is always addressing through his letters is this kind of tension that exists, right? Maybe you've picked up a Bible at some point in your life and you've noticed the Old Testament is really big and the New Testament is much smaller and the Old Testament is really, you're like, you've read it and go, I, I don't want to do with some of this stuff. And like, have you read Leviticus or Numbers? Like, I, I, I don't know why this matters. I don't want to do with this. There's a lot of stuff there, right? And so a lot of what Paul does is he says, hey, listen, um, the scriptures are always good, but some parts are no longer valuable for your life. They help us understand who God is at some level or what he called his people to, but, but there's some parts we can let go of. And so Paul's trying to get the church to understand, hey, if you're pursuing Jesus, some parts of this because of Jesus no longer have weight in your life. And he's speaking to a people who are wrestling with that because they don't like that. If your whole life has been defined by something, and now someone says to you, hey, it shouldn't be defined by that any longer, you go, hmm, what gives you that authority to say that? How do you know you're right? And so Paul, one of the, one of the and it's a weird issue, I don't know how to say it other than it's a weird issue, one of the big issues that Paul always talks about is circumcision. I know, like I said, weird issue, no way around that. But Paul's point is this, that the Jewish people had bought into the belief that no matter what, to be God's people, they had to be marked physically as God's people. And what Paul's saying is this, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where you're born, doesn't matter what country you call home, doesn't matter who your parents are, doesn't matter. You don't need some outward physical thing, you don't need to mark your body in a way, you need to be marked by Christ. He needs to have your heart. And so Paul writes all the time about that idea. And he's writing the same thing here to the church in Philippi. And here is what Paul writes, beginning with the second half of verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now Paul here, he begins with this idea um, really of just telling us kind of who he is, and he gives us kind of this list. He basically says, hey, you think you have rights to whatever you think you have? Let me tell you about me. Like, 
he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You're like, why does that matter? Well, because lots of Jewish people in the ancient world no longer knew Hebrew as their first language because they had been scattered around, and it wasn't helpful in terms of trade, and so a lot of them didn't even know it. But, but Paul's like, yeah, but I, I know Hebrew. Paul goes, you know, uh, I'm a Pharisee. And you're like, well, why does that mean anything? Well, because in all of the Jewish world, there were millions of Jews at the time of the writing of this, spread out all over. But there were probably only about 6,000 Pharisees. So Paul's like, you think you've earned this? Let me tell you who I am. Talk about zeal? I persecuted the church because I was so rigid on making sure these rules were followed. Like, this mattered so much to me that I was willing to put people to death. This is who I am. This is what I have done. This is what I will continue to do. Don't you know who I am? Paul had all kinds of prestige and power and position. Paul was all these things. He was passionate. That's why I said don't pursue your passions. He was so passionate for this with zeal that he pursued it with all that he was. And then, and then he encountered Jesus. He says, man, all all the stuff I long for, all the stuff I went after, everything I pursued, it was worthless. Right, Paul, like, so, I I mean, I don't, I kind of remember this when I was a kid, but it was definitely when you were older than that. Um, some of my friends who were in their 60s will tell you this. If they grew up in the church of the Nazarene, they used to have badges, like if you didn't miss Sunday school. Like you'd get, you'd have to, so like you might visit other churches on vacation and you'd have them fill out a form so that way you could make sure I didn't miss. Now, I wish some of you cared more about that, but that's a whole other conversation. But, right, but it was so legalistic, we can't miss. Like I, at one level, there's some good to that because we do need the community of faith in our life. It matters. But at the other, like if I'm just not missing so I can get the certificate at the end of the year, I'm not so sure that's valuable at all. And that's Paul's point. I mean, Paul, he, he got all the perfect attendance awards. I mean, he was doing all the right things. The problem was he had the wrong goals. Paul had almost reached the pinnacle of what he could hope for. And what he found is once he encountered Jesus, he realized how empty it truly was. And so here's what I'd say for us. I was thinking, how would I... Um, how would I connect us to this? And I, I guess I'd say it this way. For many of us, when it comes to our faith, um, right, we kind of hope for the minimum entrance award. Here's what I mean. Like, if you ever go to, like, an amusement park, they have that height thing that you have to be X tall, right? Um, I, I always love, like, when parents are trying to stretch their kid. It's for their kid's safety, by the way. That's why it exists. And like, oh, he's... You're pretty close. No, that's not safe. But that exists for this reason, right? It's the minimum requirement to get in. And I think for many of us, that's kind of how we approach our Christian faith. Like we live with this idea, what's the minimum it might require for me to get heaven, whatever heaven might be? What's the minimum thing for that? What's the minimum I could do to just kind of get in the door, right? How much... Can I be like everybody else and still have a little bit of Jesus? That's the question we're really asking, right? I, I don't really want Jesus to have all of me. I want him to have as little of me as possible so I can do whatever I want to do and still get this thing at the end. Like, what's the minimum entrance requirement? What's the height I have to attain? So I want to live whatever's going to help me become more popular or more rich or have more power or more prestige or more success or, or whatever it is or, or whatever, 
What's the minimum I can do? And here's the problem for us, because that's not at all what, what God hopes for us. In fact, what Jesus says over and over again, what Paul is trying to articulate is this. Jesus doesn't want the minimum of you. He wants all of you. And so what's that mean? He wants you to be faithful. It's not a question of what's the minimum we can give. The question for you and I is, well, are we faithful? And faithfulness requires, like all of us, not a part of us. It comes back to this question of are we pursuing with passion the right things? And like Paul, he's wrestling with, do I, I was pursuing all these things and I thought they were right, but I realized they were like not right. They were not who God was. I thought I knew who God was only to find out I was totally wrong about who God was and I didn't know what to do with that. And so I would say it this way, we don't embrace the fullness of who God is, and so we would say um, we believe lies. We don't believe the truth. Like Paul got part of it right when he's like he knew to be zealous for God was a good thing. That is a good thing, by the way. To be pious and to seek after him, good things. If those are the ends in and of themselves, bad things. Right, you guys get what most lies are, right? They're just twisted versions of the truth. The best liars tell you part of the truth, or even almost the whole thing except the linchpin of the, of the truth is the lie. You guys understand that, right? That's how this works. And so we believe lies. We believe half-truths about God. Like, we, we will say, well, you know, he just, just believe in God. Believe in Jesus. At one level, I want to be careful here, but I also think that might almost be a half-truth of being just believing is significant because the devil believes in Jesus. It's not... It's, are, are you faithful? Are you choosing to trust your life to him? Right? A lie is a twisted version of the truth. And so what do I mean by that? Paul is living out of a half-truth, and he spent half of his life living out the half-truth. Right? Our half-truths look one of two ways, right? We, we are legalistic and, and ritualistic, and we are just going to do all these right things. Or, um, like, well, I'm going to do whatever I want, and just, I'll say that prayer one time, or maybe twice, and just trust that that's enough. So what's that look like in our actual lives? We pursue success. Bigger house, better cars, make more money. Cooler snowmobile. By the way, do you guys realize people who ride snowmobiles, you have to use them in the winter in the cold outdoors. What sounds fun about going 60 miles an hour in freezing weather? Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, or we'll say things like this, I will give more and I will serve more um, when I have more. Twisted truth. Ambition so I can have more money or a better job, or more titles, or, or here's one, right? We, we will say, well, I'm just doing this so I can give my kids more than I had growing up, or so I can give them at least what I had growing up. It sounds like a really good thing, but it's a twisted version of the truth. Or we tie our value to, like, social media engagement, like, if I don't get enough likes, then I must not be worth much. 
Or if I get all the likes, then I must be more valuable. Right? I need more affirmation from other people. Like, these are things where they're twisted versions. Like, affirmation is not a bad thing, but if I need it all the time, it's now an idol that I'm seeking after. It's the wrong thing. Or politics is the answer for all these things, so I'm going to give more time to that than I am to Jesus. What, whatever it is, we can have things that are of, in, of, in and of themselves not bad be what we pursue, and then it becomes harmful. So don't mishear me. Um, You're created to work. You and I are created to work. Work happens before, like go read Genesis, right? Work happens before sin enters into the story, so you and I are created to work. Sorry about that. But we're also created for rest. In fact, I'd say it this way. um, We're called to care for our family. Like, that's a biblical idea. But what is not a biblical idea is care for our family would be love and food and shelter and discipleship. It is not that my kids get every new toy or buy every new thing or they have to buy more stuff or they have to pay for their entire college. I mean, some of those are good things. I'm not saying they're bad things, but they become the wrong pursuit. Right? Social media can be a, a good tool. Right? Some of you are listening right now or watching online. Like, that's a good tool. That's a cool thing, by the way. Uh, we have people who are a part of our church every week who have, some of them never set foot in this room. It's a pretty cool thing. But it, it can twist you up, and you can believe all kinds of false truth. In fact, there's like literally algorithms that produce the stuff you see. In and of themselves, they're not bad things. Politics has its place, but when it has your full allegiance, we forget that the only thing that should have our full allegiance is God. So I'm going to say something that at first glance might um, feel weird if you pursue all these things. right? And I, I said, most of them are not even bad necessarily, but, but they get the wrong position in our life. They get the wrong amount of our pursuit, and so then our purpose is twisted if our purpose is one of those things and not to know God more than we're missing what we're actually created for. Um, So these wrong pursuits aren't just misguided. They're idolatry. Like, that sounds harsh, right? Because some people, we read about idolatry in the Old Testament, like, well, I don't have to worry about idolatry because I would never worship, like, a golden thing. That's so weird. Why would people do that? And you're right, we don't. We worship our families. And we worship our political party. We worship our jobs. We worship our stuff. We worship all these things. Like we, we go, well, that's not really worship. Well, if your life's pursuit is that, then that's called worship. Now, I do want to say something. Because um, if, if we're not careful, we'll think, oh, well, then I, if I do anything that's not just following Jesus, then I'm not doing what God wants. It's not... There's a thing called holy ambition where I'm giving my best to whatever it is at the end with trying to figure out how I can, I can make it a holy ambition. That's a good thing. That, I believe, is a gift from God. But holy ambition doesn't forget this thing. It's all about being holy because when Paul talks again and again about righteousness, you're like, what does that word even mean? It just means right relationship with God. What might happen if our life's pursuit was to be in right relationship with God? And so we pursue these half-truths. Like, they're not bad things in and of themselves, but, but if they're our life's purpose, our life's goal, then they are destructive. And so there's a word that's been around for a long time, not a new word. It's called syncretism. 
I know, big word. Syncretism, right? What's it mean? Combining incompatible beliefs or practices with the Christian faith. It's taking Jesus and adding whatever else we want to it. It's saying this, like I use an example, I was talking with a college student this week um, who called me and was like, hey, I'm struggling with some things in life. And, and so we were talking through their faith and their journey. And I said, I think I'd say it this way as, as you're trying to, what, what it sounds like you're saying is, you have found yourself guilty of this. You have made Jesus an added additive to your life, a condiment, if you will, right? He's a little ketchup on your burger instead of being the whole thing. It's how can I live all I want to do and then add Jesus in instead of I want to follow Jesus with all that I am. And then all these other things will kind of find themselves in their right place. Syncretism is the idea that I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of do whatever I want to do and trust that God's going to bless whatever I'm doing, even if it's not good. And so the question for you and I, there is a better way forward. And the question is this, what becomes the truth we should pursue? If we often pursue like half-truths, or we call those lies. What's the truth that we should be pursuing? And this is Paul's singular focus. Singular focus is to pursue Jesus. Paul makes it abundantly clear. He has one single goal, to know Jesus and to help other people know him too. That is Paul's whole life mission, and it's for all of us. Like, Paul's not saying this because I'm some special guy that, like, I had this incredible encounter with Jesus. But Paul's saying, for everyone, this is your life's goal. If you will do this, you will find true purpose. And so here's what Paul writes again. I'll read it again. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And Paul's wanting you and I to see life from a new perspective. In fact, I love the word, um, I, I was fascinated by the word this week, and I, the word garbage there. It seemed like an interesting phrase to use, and so I went back and kind of was looking and, and reading. My favorite was one commentator, um, wrote a book a few years ago, it's actually from our tradition, printed from our, our, our denomination's publishing house. And, and so he's trying to, to, to help us understand this word garbage. It's only used like once or twice in the whole New Testament. And he's like refuse or waste. And he said, to be, to be truthful, the best way I could describe it in the common vernacular of our day, you could substitute for the word garbage, crap. I know you're going to go, did he just say crap in church? I did. Um... Because what he's saying, I have one goal, and everything that's come before it is crap. It's a better translation. You want like a, a common modern-day vernacular? And it says, here's what Paul's saying. I consider everything before it. It's crap. It's worthless. It's no good. I want nothing to do with it. Because once I have come to know Jesus, it's all I care about. And it, is, it has taken what seemed to make sense in my life, and it's refocused it in a way that maybe I'm going in the right direction. And so what he's saying is this, I want you to know Jesus, not just like in your head, but in your heart and your mind and your body and your soul. I want all of you to know him. Right? I read a lot because I like books. I like to learn but Paul would say to me and to some like me, hey, I don't care that you keep reading. Keep reading, that's great. But if it doesn't impact all that you are, the depth of your being, then it's just head knowledge. It's no good. But we want you to come to experience who Jesus is because I can't describe that to you. 
I don't have words that do that. Paul's pursuit of Jesus is his life's purpose. And he finds everything else in life begins to take its proper place when that happens. So back to those lists of things we want, like our job, our family, all those things, they become in right perspective when he is the singular pursuit of our life. All right, one, one more new word, right? Syncretism is combining things with Jesus. New word, cruciformity. Cruciformity. I like this word better, by the way. It's Christians, I love Michael Gorman's definition of this word. He says, Christians living out their lives in conformity to the love story of the cross. So conforming my life to the crucified Lord. And I love that he doesn't just say like, oh, because it's all about the death of sin. But he says, because it's the love story of the cross. Right? What do I mean by that? The cross is the picture and the depth of God's love. The cross is the picture of the depth and breadth and width of God's love that no matter how torturous you can think of something, no matter how bad something may seem, no matter what you have experienced, the cross is the place that love conquers that. Cruciformity. Conforming our life to the love story of the cross. I love this quote I came across this week. The more we share in Christ's suffering and death, the more we are conformed to his likeness. And the more we are shaped into his likeness, the more we will live, we will experience the ongoing power of his resurrection. This resurrected life, it's a life worth living. I want to know that life, don't you? I want to know that life. I want to know what it's like to seek after the resurrected Lord. I want to know what that looks like. I... I want to find my life's purpose in following Jesus. I want a life that's defined by cruciformity, not syncretism. I want a life, I I don't know about you, but I want my whole purpose in life being to know Jesus and to know him more. I want my whole life's purpose to be that because I think it will radically change who I am as a father and as a husband, as a pastor. I'm saying this for me personally. I want this to be what guides my entire life. And I know, I know, I know. Some of you right now are going, well, easy for you to say, Aaron. You pastor a church. That's supposed to be your job, to want to know Jesus and help other people do that. Fair, fair point. But if you think the temptation to believe twisted lies and to buy into different truths isn't just as real for me as it is for you, you're fooling yourself. You're not fooling me. Right? You want me to be honest with you? I care about ambition and success as much as anybody probably. And I probably fight that as much or more than I fight anything else. And the challenge for me is I can begin to justify it, right? Like I can begin to say, well, if just more people come to our church and more people, I mean, at the end of the day, I want more people to come to our church. I want more people to know Jesus. That I think is a holy ambition. But if I'm not careful, I can make it all about me in that from my own perspective. Not from your perspective, but from mine. The temptations that you and I wrestle through in this may be different, or they might be the same. But I know this, that when I find myself seeking after Jesus with all that I am, the purposes of my life are in right perspective. When I pursue him, and I find that as my purpose, I find that everything else in life makes complete sense. 
But I also know this, I'm not there yet. In fact, that's what Paul says next. He says this, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul has not yet arrived at the place of spiritual maturity. Paul recognizes that true maturity recognizes it has not arrived. True maturity recognizes it has not yet arrived. There is no one in this room, none of us, have yet arrived at the fullness of what God wants for us. None of us, from the youngest to the oldest, those who spend more time with God than whoever else, right? none of us is there. But what Paul says is this, forgetting what I've done, forgetting how far I've already come, I don't even care about that. I have only one singular pursuit. I have one purpose. I have one goal. I have one thing I'm focusing on. And Paul's answer to that is this, he's pursuing one thing only, and that's Jesus. And then this last line that we sometimes mess up, right? It says the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. That's the line. Um, I'm sorry, it says heavenward, but the better translation is this, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Because Paul's using this analogy, um, trying to get help, help paint a picture, right? If we were to understand what Paul's talking about, what the early church heard in this was they, they, they pictured the ancient Olympic Games. And so when the winner would run the race, when they would finish the race, you would actually go upward, up the steps to where whoever was giving the prize, and they would give you your award. They would hand you your prize and place this crown on you or this wreath or whatever it was. And so this upward call of God in Christ. The person who is making that call what you're pressing on toward, this goal, this prize, this end goal, is that he would step forward and Christ would say, I know you, and you know me. And so Paul says, everything else pressing on towards, forgetting what is behind. I don't care about the past. I don't care what you have done, where you have come from. I have one singular pursuit. Paul's singular pursuit was Jesus. And so the question for you and I is this, what are you and I pursuing? What are you and I pursuing? If we will pursue Jesus, we will find purpose. If we will pursue Jesus, we will find purpose. So today, I, I don't know which one of these may speak to you more. Maybe you've never decided to pursue Jesus in your life, and you go, you know what? I've heard about this enough. I'm in. I'm going to pursue him. I, I believe that somehow Christ died for me to save me from my sin and from my brokenness and from my shame, and I can be freed from all that. But maybe today you're going, I, I just know there's something I need to let go of, because Paul's pretty clear. I'm letting go of all that's come before me, forgetting what is behind. It's crap, and I'm done with it. 
Maybe for you today, you need to let go of something that's been really hard for you to let go of, and, and you just need to lay it down. And so we literally have said throughout this series, like right in the cross, there's a cross in the back, and you can write down whatever it is you need to let go of, because maybe tangibly, you need to put it on paper and say, I'm done with this. And by the way, we'll be burning all those here in a few weeks, because it's gone. So maybe today, you need to say, God, I need to let go of this. Or maybe today, in just a few moments, we're going to take communion. And there's a line in this passage where Paul says, because Christ took hold of me. So good. Jesus took hold of him. See, Jesus pursued Paul. But here's the cool thing. Jesus didn't just pursue Paul. He's pursuing you and I. And so Paul says this. Christ took hold of me, so I took hold of him. And so when we come to take communion today, maybe you need a reminder that when you take that bread, you're taking hold of the gift of the grace of God, and he so desperately wants you to know who he is in the person of Jesus. Father, we pray this morning those words we have sung might be true that we would say, I need more of you and you can take everything. And we begin to recognize the goodness about who you are. So often we hand everything over to you. You give most of it right back. The things you hold on to are the things that we needed to let go of because they were destroying us. sometimes we forget that we buy into this idea that you are someone who just wants to keep track of all wrongs in this life and that we're keeping this huge checklist but but you want us to be restored and redeemed and not let broken things define our lives and so may we recognize that your love love can radically transform us may we buy into the idea of cruciformity that our lives be formed to the love seen in Jesus act on the cross and it might define who we are And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to to put our eyes, our focus, our life upon pursuing your Son. And then in the pursuit of him, we might find hope and life and love. And, Father, we might truly become people who find our life's purpose. And so we ask you to open our eyes and our ears for the way you are leading us Pray this in Jesus' name.